Devin Springer, host of the Groundings Podcast. And joining me today is the wonderfully brilliant Robin Maynard, writer, activist, educator, and award-winning author of the book Policing Black Lives, State Violence in Canada from Slavery to the Present, the book that will actually be the center or the basis for our conversation today. We're going to talk about policing, prison industrial complex, and how these structures impact Black people's lives in Canada, as well as dispelling some myths about the supposed colorblindness of Canadian society, among other topics today. But before I continue, I'm going to go ahead and let Robin introduce herself. Robin. Hey, thank you so much for having me on. This is truly one of my favorite podcasts, so it's a real honor to be on the show. Um, so my name is Robin Maynard. Uh, as you've mentioned, I'm the author of Policing Black Lives. I'm also working on some, some new works right now. I have a long history of involvement in harm reduction and outreach work. I have a long history of involvement in work against racial profiling, uh, you know, with teenagers, with adults, um, with the criminalization of women, particularly black and indigenous women um, in my life in Montreal before I moved over here to Toronto two years ago. Now I am working at the University of Toronto, working on a PhD as a Vanier scholar there and been involved in some of the more recent struggles towards defunding uh, the police, for example. So I helped put together the Canadian research for a website, www.defundthepolice.org, that's been helping just kind of create, you know, a basis of understanding for what it means to defund in the service of abolition in this way. And I still like to try to help in particularly fighting against, you know, Black migrants that are fighting uh, deportation, fighting detention, and this kind of work as well. Though I would say that perhaps... I'm a little bit less, you know, active in that in that way than I had been in in the previous years. So right now, I'm just finding different ways to to be helpful uh, in in freedom making work. I really think we can go ahead and dive right in. And all the listeners, a little show note for you: this is actually our second time recording this interview. Robin was gracious enough to come back on and re-record it after we had technical difficulties the last time. And I've had guests in the past who have not been as uh, accommodating to do that and to work with us. So I really want to. Thank you for that, Robin. Oh, yeah. Thank you for having me back on. It's a pleasure. So. <laughs> so first, can you tell me a little bit how you came to this work and how the Policing Black Lives book came about? What really inspired the book and, and sort of for you to to start going into that work? Sure. So that's a great question. I definitely wrote this book really trying to make it a contribution to the movement for Black Lives more broadly. That's something that's always been closest to my heart. My writing has always really been in the service of of social movements in particular. Right. So I, you know, as I'd mentioned, I have really a long history of, of working against racial profiling, you know, working especially with a lot of families who'd had loved ones killed by the police, harmed by the police. And there's just the, really this constant fr- frustration doing this kind of organizing, especially in a Canadian context, in a Montreal context, where the reality of anti-blackness is so continuously disavowed and silenced. Um, Catherine McKittrick describes it uh, with blackness always being a surprise <laughs> and, you know, therefore the colliery of also, you know, anti-black incidents um, and the massive black protests that we see against them as somehow always being a surprise and the media, you know, acting as if, for example, this, the outrage that our communities are experiencing or expressing when it comes to organizing, when it comes to protests are somehow imported from the United States. So this is, of course, not only a disavowal of what our communities are experiencing in real time in the present, but also of, you know, literally hundreds of years of history of anti-Black state violence and state sanctioned violence. So I think I really 
was becoming frustrated with that particular type of erasure, especially given, you know, the really powerful and important Black scholarship that had been done, like um, by Black slavery scholars, by like Charmaine Nelson, like Harmi Amani Whitfield, and a lot more of the, you know, this contemporary work that somehow was continually pushed aside in the favor of this notion that, um, not only do black people not exist here, but that, you know, the rampant police uh, killings, police surveillance, police abuse, deportations, removal in the child welfare system, school to prison pipeline, as if these were somehow not uh, present here. It's like a very continuous, uh, you know, you could describe it as gaslighting of black activists, especially living as I was in Montreal, um, that continue to tell you that what you are seeing, what you have seen, what you have read described in reports is somehow not there. So what I really wanted to do was contribute in one way that I can do because of, you know, the skill a particular skill set that I have towards really uh, in this moment when we were starting to see the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement in Canada, there was mass protests, for example, against the police killing of Andrew Goku, who was a Sudanese father of four, uh, who was killed by police in the context of a mental health crisis. We cannot talk about the Andrew Goku case at this time. Black Lives Matter Toronto and the black community at in Toronto have a series of demands that we would like to read out for you folks. We are asking for the immediate release of the name of the officers that killed Andrew Loku, charges to be laid against the officers who killed Mr. Loku, the immediate and public release of any video footage from the apartment complex where Andrew Loku was murdered, a public apology from the mayor, chief of police, and the Toronto Police Department, to the family and broader community. The funeral and the local to be funded completely by the city of Toronto. Monetary compensation for the family of Andrew Goku for the damages caused by the Toronto Police Department. The adoption of all recommendations made by the African Canadian Legal Clinic. A systemic inquiry by the Office of the Independent Police Review Director to gauge whether there has been adequate disciplinary action taken against officers who use force against black people living with mental health issues. We are starting to see really strong organizing against that. And it's something I was, you know, participating in in my own city, but also really wanted to just help create for, you know, for many of us who had these histories ignored, who've had these contemporary realities ignored, something that could help us in really launching like a full fronged attack on the multiple ways in which we see anti-Black racism, state-sanctioned violence uh, play out in the multiple ways in our communities, in a ways especially that didn't leave out uh, Black uh, women, including Black trans women, Black gender non-conforming people, in ways that didn't inadvertently reproduce a particular kind of understanding of racism, which, you know, can often very much focus solely on the young, sort of presumed to be cisgendered heterosexual Black men, for example. So it was about trying to create a broader frame for us that would allow us, you know, to, to really help um, you know, forward a really strong feminist understanding of what it means to fight the policing of Black lives here. And of course, not in any sense of recreating the wheel, of contributing to this like vast and expansive uh, array of, of Black scholarship in, in Canada that has been attesting to all of this work and trying to contribute uh, modestly to that. And you sort of led into what my next question was going to be, actually. And what struck me immediately upon beginning the book is how heavily researched you can just tell right off the bat that it truly is. I mean, you have a, a wide breadth of sources, for example, that you're pulling from, including interviews, archival materials, data. It's, it's, it's a very expansively researched 
piece, but there's also this, what feels like a black feminist commitment to viewing the state violence against black people sort of through an intersectional lens or analysis, or for a different term, maybe through the marginalized viewpoints, right? Like you said, it does often center black women, black trans women, black queer people, and in such a way that it folds the margins into the center, right? Where they're usually on the outside. And so I'm curious if you could tell me a little bit about that and how the, maybe how the response has been to that as well. Sure. Um, yeah, I think you're right in pointing out that that is absolutely one of the central uh, commitments of what I was trying to do, uh, what I was trying to do this work. And of course, um, you know, there's a really strong and powerful tradition of black feminists uh, in Canada, you know, the earlier works of, and you know, and the present works of writers like Dion Brand, um, like Maqueda Silvera, uh, like Linda Cardi and Sylvia Hamilton, who have really been, you know, continually insisting, despite constant erasure, that we really need to center the experiences of black women, not only out of a not only out of the real feminist commitment that tells us that, of course, Black women's lives are important in and of themselves, but also for what this actually reveals to us about the nature of what racialized policing is, right, as an always already gendered practice. So this is something that became that becomes really crucial, for example. One way that I really like to think about this that's very much inspired by the work of close friend and comrade Andrea Ritchie is... You know, the way that she articulates it really is, but if we look at the realities of Black women, particularly poor Black women, particularly trans Black women, for example, we're able to see so many more kinds of the ways that racialized and gendered surveillance is embedded into our society. So this actually gives us a vastly expansive scope of what it means for us to build a movement that can adequately counter anti-Black racism if we're not only seeing it within the frame that we're often socialized uh, to understand, right, of, again, the sort of cisgendered, heterosexual young Black man. So if we looked, for example, to the realities of the ways in which certain kinds of surveillance of Black women's private lives and public lives were so much, were so much merged, both, of course, under slavery, which this is sort of categorically true, and moving forward into the 19th and 20th century, where Black women in particular are forced um, into largely domestic work in this way in which, you know, they're very intimate uh, lives are also subject to surveillance, and this is a matter of their labor as well. So there's a kind of surveillance, there's a kind of captivity there that we're not looking, that we're not seeing if we're only looking to, of course, again, the very real policing of movement through public space that happens on the streets, of course, to both Black men and to Black women and to arrest. But we see another kind of carceral structure that's really, again, reifying a certain kind of economic subjugation of Black women uh, that's absolutely a feature of how this takes place. And if we look, for example, you know, Simone Brown helps us think, I think, about the, the ways in which the surveillance, for example, of Black and Maqueda Silvera, too, or the way that Black domestic uh, workers who were brought in under what was called originally the Caribbean domestic scheme in the 1950s that was renamed and carried for the decades afterwards, where you have, you know, Black women describing how even as they were working, of course, unable to, to contest uh, really harmful and violent working conditions under threat of deportation, but also would describe moving their hand the wrong way and their employer asking them to move differently. So what we see is that even in places that are often considered to be more benign sites of work uh, that are sometimes seen as less exploitative, we actually see that there's a very intensive scrutiny that's actually built into uh, into this, both economically and in a way that we also need to see as, as carceral. Um, you can look forward, again, I'm like, it's about 
where and how we prioritize what we see and where we locate violence, right? So again, of course, the policing of Black people in public space through in Canada, in Canada, we, it's called carding. In the US, it's often called stop and frisk, right? Which, of course, this is one site of egregious harm against our communities, right? Like the ability to not be able to move through public space, uh, whether or not that results in physical violence is itself a kind of violence. But if we look to the ways in which Black women, for example, are subject uh, to the policing of their lives through uh, welfare and the way that social workers also have access uh, to them because of the criminalization of things like so-called welfare fraud, right? Which is really the criminalization of poverty, the suspicion that you might be making slightly more than, you know, the $700 that of course is not even slightly uh, considered enough that you could pay your rent, right? So there's this criminalization that's facilitated that in some ways needs to be understood as, as just as violent, the ability of people to for example, question your neighbors to, to go into your home. If we look into what the child welfare system particularly is allowed to do when it comes to especially poor black women's lives, we see the removal of children, we see the destruction of families being placed, of black kids being placed in care, right? So this really needs uh, a feminist commitment to understanding the surveillance and the policing uh, of black peoples, focusing on black women's lives, for example, on poor black women's lives, uh, exposes entirely new, uh, not new, but entirely broader facets of actually where we need to look to find um, anti, you know, anti-Black state violence. And then it also helps us think about abolition in a way that, of course, is, is much larger that goes just that goes beyond just the, the criminal justice system or the criminal injustice system, rather. I feel like that is a interesting way of framing your work. And it's a way of framing your work that could actually be very productive and generative for other scholars and writers listening because I feel like many abolitionist authors and writers fall into one of two traps. Either they are focused solely and very sort of granular and specific on one very, very, uh, one very specific structure within the entire anti-Black capitalist carceral state, right? Or they're focused really heavily on arguing that these other facets like schooling and education and housing and domestic work are also forms of policing. And you kind of get distracted in actually discussing the details that lie in the middle, right? So the actual experiences of these domestic workers' lives, for example, which you cite the interviews of Caribbean women and African women who were domestic workers. So by not falling into that binary trap, right, of either having to argue that this really is violence and really is policing and not solely focusing on one very granular aspect, I feel like you actually provided a really, really productive analysis that manages to do both almost naturally. Thank you so much. That was definitely the what I was trying to work towards. And of course, I love a granular, <laughs> I love a granular and specific study. And what I was trying to do with this piece was, was, was something a little bit different was again, really, particularly in the context, you know, of this emergent, um, you know, black liberation struggle that we were seeing was really, I guess, feeling a particular urgency that if now is the moment that we are really going to fight this, um, then we need to do so in the most informed and comprehensive way. And this was sort of a way of contributing to trying to create a, a sort of macro understanding of, of all of this. Yeah, and I should say just for the listeners, I'm not anti-granular. Um, <laughs> I'm working on research about George Washington Carver, which is the most granular something can get. So I'm definitely not <laughs> anti-granular. I want to talk a little bit about the myth of so-called multiculturalism and colorblindness that's so persistent in Canada. You sort of mentioned it a little bit in saying that dispelling these myths was part of the catalyst for this work. But I'm curious, 
One, what is the public climate and conversation around policing and Blackness and to an extent indigeneity as well in Canada? And what was the reaction to your book from the more sort of mainstream crowds that have largely bought into this idea of multiculturalism and colorblindness in Canada? Thanks for that question. And if you don't mind, I'm going to take like the I'm going to take the long answer <laughs> to give to explain to how we actually have arrived uh, in this present in this present moment where I, Canada is very particular in the way that anti-black racism is articulated and not articulated. And I think that it's really to me the historical way in which that is that has evolved just tells us a really important story about how this particular kind of myth making from kind of the underground railroad mythos to the multiculturalism, uh, you know, to categorizations that serve sort of a similar ideological function of disguising uh, the brutality of anti-Black racism, of disguising material and economic subjugation, right? So I think that um, Marianne Shad Carey, who's of course an abolitionist, um, probably known on the U.S. side of the border as well, somebody that crossed the border, was once described Canada as an anti-slavery Negro hater, right? And I feel that this wording is, is, is helpful in that it helps us understand the ways that um, historically Canada has really used a kind of commitment to an outward perception of benevolence, the veneer of humanitarianism, while at the same time, you know, working implicitly, sometimes explicitly, again, to, to maintain the economic subjugation of Black peoples, to maintain the carceral controls over Black people's lives. So if we look to, there are so many historical examples where we can look to where um, Canada is has often represented itself as a site of liberation for Black peoples, while again, disguising the very real and acute material deprivations that accompanied that. So if we even look to, I'm not sure if it's still up when I was researching the book, though, I, I was going to the, what's called the Canada Heritage website that really tells, you know, the Black, the story of Black history in Canada. And one of these first sort of celebration myths of Canada being this site, this site of benevolence for Black people is the arrival of, uh, you know, the so-called Black loyalists from the U.S. to Canada. Of course, downplaying the fact that, the, you know, the Black loyalists who arrived were not given the same access to land, food, dignity as white loyalists, but also uh, not describing the fact that accompanying, uh, at the same time, we had the arrival of white loyalists with thousands of enslaved Black people that actually vastly expanded the practice and even just the empirical sort of numbers in which enslaved Black peoples were present in the maritime provinces in Canada, right? So that's that's already one. If you look to, again, another site where I really think we have so much focus, which of course is Canada at the end of the Underground Railroad, uh, that's something that I think Charmaine Nelson has argued this so astutely, which focuses on 30 years of history you know, in the the colonies that then became Canada, while ignoring the fact that of uh, 200 years of slavery, which was of course legal and practice for the 200 years preceding that, right? So you have a way in which a particular a particular moment in history stands in for and actually replaces uh, centuries of treatment in which black men and women children were considered property, uh, were sold separately of uh, you know separately from their parents. You know, even systemically, we have the Segregated Schools Act of Union of 1840, the Common Schools Act of 1850, that are of course mandating segregated schooling, for example, of Black children in a period that, again, is often described as this very liberatory period for Black people. So it's a very selective representation of history that uplifts one particular narrative at the expense of, again, the lived realities of Black peoples who had experienced these times. So what we see, again, is there's very much this, this commitment to the appearance of benevolence, which is not accompanied by the commitment of actually addressing or attending to anti-Black racism. And in fact, we actually see ongoing, of course, realities of things throughout the 20th century, like informal sundown laws, 
right? Dion Brand does these really great oral histories uh, that she published in 1991 called No Burden to Carry of Black women, Black working women describing, you know, walking from one town to work and then walking back up before sundown because of, you know, because of the sundown legislation, right? So we have this, this legacy. And then you still have Canada pointing to the United States and saying, see there, there was Jim Crow. Uh, so this very, this way where things are particularly informal in order to disguise the very real and intentioned and by design kind of ways in which Black people's marginalization was upheld. So something that also was particularly interesting historically is that Canada doesn't have the same history of lynching, for example, as the United States, but you can actually look to the ways in which the threat of lynching was sometimes invoked. So for example, by the Imperial Order of Daughters, who were trying to prohibit uh, Black men from from entering Canada in 1910-1911, their justification was that they, did, they didn't want to sully Canada with lynching. So that's why these Black men should not be allowed to arrive. So, right, we have the way in which, again, this idea that this, this use of the United States as somehow exceptionally violent is actually used to support and, and forward anti-Black practices here. At the same time, where of course we actually have a very active, you know, throughout the 20th century, a very active Ku Klux Klan, for example, that's very much part of, of dominant discourse. So I think that it's just the way in which the erasure is sort of structured into the narrative of the Canada of Canada. What I'm trying to get at, I guess, has a very long history that's very much a part of Canadian identity into the present. So Robin Winks even described actually how by 1860, where of course um, slavery had been only abolished for 30 years in you know the colonies that became Canada, the British uh, colonies. Already, it had been removed from the textbooks in that region, and only which only referred to slavery in the United States. So it's a very explicit erasure. It's a very deliberate erasure. That I think you know anyone familiar with the history of the British Empire who've rebranded themselves as somehow the abolitionists, the leading abolitionists in history, right? As opposed to the leading, uh, the leading empire in enslavement, in brutality, and violence. Uh, so you can really kind of see some of the similarities there in terms of the way that Canadian discourse has gone forward. So to get to what you asked me in terms of how multiculturalism, and I apologize for this long diversion, but to me it's just a trajectory that I see as really, as really important. Multiculturalism, as I was saying, really serves a very similar function where we have multiculturalism being adopted formally in 1971. But as, you know, so many uh, feminists of color had, have criticized before this, it didn't address the fundamental inequalities, right? What we have here is the presentation and celebration of different cultures but not standing in for or doing anything to address the vast um, economic subjugation, criminalization of black peoples more broadly. Indigenous feminists like Audra Simpson and Glenn Coulthard have, all, have really, I think, clearly laid out too how the ways in which Canada's description as multiculturalism particularly disguises the ongoing land expropriation of indigenous peoples, right? So you have, again, you have this commitment to and celebration of sort of allowing people, I'm using quotation fingers here, to preserve their cultures. But at the same time, you have, again, like the very acute destruction of people's actual uh, livelihoods, of ways of being, of living in the world, right? So again, um, if you look to Canada's role in like neocolonialism in particular, right, the reason that Black peoples, that other racialized peoples are being displaced here, Canada has a very active role in, right? Like Peter Hudson describes so well the ways in which Caribbean, um, you know, Caribbean students in Canada, peoples in Trinidad and Jamaica identified Canadian, the presence of Canadian banks, for example, in the Caribbean as, as an imperial presence. Right. So again, you have this notion that Canada has sort of allowed, again, quotation fingers, um, black peoples to enter Canada out of some kinds of benevolence when, in fact, there's very real economic elements that Canada is participating in that's displacing black people from from their homes in the global south. And yet it's seen a gift that some 
of those people are now allowed into the into Canada, even though, again, much of this is for economic reasons, because after the Second World War, there's many reasons why Europeans and Americans were not coming to populate Canada, um, and the economy very much required an influx of migrants, right? So you know the way that uh, Eric Williams describes how the end of slavery was not about suddenly this benevolent understanding of black people taking over, but there's this economic justification. Well, similarly, the ways in which explicitly white supremacist immigration policies finally started to allow larger black populations in has very little to do with benevolence. And multiculturalism, again, serves very much as a veneer for Canada's role in displacement in the IMF and the World Bank. Uh, you know, even in C we see CETA giving $590 million in debt relief uh, to African countries in 2005, but very much, again, tying this to participation in IMF and World Bank created policies, right? So that Canada is always very much a part of the reasons that people are, are arriving here in the so-called crisis in the first place, as well as, of course, being part of, you know, the coup d'etat in Haiti, right? And then, and then describing the arrival of Haitian migrants and asylum seekers to Canada as a migrant crisis, right? So we see the ways that multiculturalism the nominal commitment to the, this aspirational idea of multiculturalism, again, is a stand-in for actually trying to, to create anything that we could even reasonably call equality, which is a word, <laughs> which is a word that, I, that I, don't, I don't even like to use, right? But I just think that it's, it's really important for us to look at the ways in which there's a, sp there's a specific maneuvering, a political maneuvering of Canadian branding. Uh, and it's quite effective, right? It's quite effective for Canadians who very much have understood their country as, you know, most, I'd say closely as the end of the Underground Railroad, as a, a beacon of human rights, you know, in, in the world, compared, always favorably compared to the United States. And we continue to see this playing out in a multitude of ways. So, of course, uh, in this wave of recent protests against police killings, which were very much occurring in Canada as well, right? Um, we had protests here that were massive, that were historic, and it was not only in sympathy with, you know, the communities in the U.S. that were protesting against the killing of George Floyd, but an Afro-Indigenous woman named Regis Karshinsky-Paquet died in a police encounter just recently in Toronto, where the police were called into a mental health crisis. Questions are still swirling tonight about what exactly happened the moments before a young Black woman fell to her death from her High Park apartment yesterday. The province's police watchdog is now investigating as the family demands answers about how a call for help ended with such a horrific ending. I asked the police yesterday if they could take my daughter to Camp H and my daughter ended up dead. So I don't understand. A heartbroken family desperate for answers after 29-year-old Regis Korczynski Paquette ended up dead on the lawn of her High Park apartment Wednesday. We need to find justice for her. She means so much to me. I love you, Regis. I love you, and I'll never stop fighting for you. I promise you. Police were called to the 24th floor around 5 p.m. by Regis's mother, who says her daughter was experiencing a mental health crisis after an epileptic seizure. They say Regis exchanged words with officers in the hallway, then entered the apartment saying she had to use the bathroom. Police followed, barring her brother and mother from entering. After approximately one to two minutes, the mother and the brother heard commotion in the apartment and then heard Regis cry out, Mom, help. Mom, help. Mom, help. After that, mother and brother heard silence. The police killed my daughter, came in my apartment and shoved her off the balcony. Those were the allegations being made by Regis's mother hours after the incident Wednesday. 
Today, the family stopped short of repeating them, but say they find it hard to believe Regis would have jumped. I can tell you this. Regis has been calling the building for weeks in an attempt to get a screen put on her balcony, as her neighbor has a screen. She's had very strong concerns about the safety. It's the way they went into it, how aggressively they went in there after, after a girl that is... 100 pounds. It's 100 pounds. It's the way that they went in there. Regis's brother calling out Toronto Police's aggressive handling of the situation, saying there were at least five officers on scene. Their family lawyer pointing out this is not the first time police have failed to deal with mental health calls appropriately. If we see statistically, there is a higher proportion of violence against people of color. When you intersect mental health and color, then you get an even higher percentage. Case in point, the shooting death of Andrew Loku in 2015, a black man with mental health issues killed by Toronto police. A 2017 coroner's inquest recommended the force expand its crisis services, review use of force training, and focus on de-escalation. Those officers were never charged. Now, Regis's family describes her as a talented gymnast and a volunteer at her church. They say she only began experiencing seizures within the last five years. She leaves behind four siblings and 12 nieces and nephews. With her family walking in front, a horse-drawn hearse returned Regis Korczynski Paquette home for a final time. Not one second goes by. During the day, 30, 60 days go by, not one second. I don't think about it. It was an emotional afternoon as hundreds gathered for a public memorial for the 29-year-old. Is Regis's mom right in front of me? Ma'am, I am so sorry for your loss. And it shouldn't have been this way. Your family called for help and you didn't get it. It was May 27th when police were called to this building by Korczynski Paquette's mother. A 911 call that started with a person in distress and ended when Korczynski Paquette fell from her balcony to the ground below after an interaction with Toronto police. The province's special investigations unit is investigating. The family's lawyer expects that after receiving the results of the family's second autopsy, that investigation could be made public as early as next month. We want to know what happened to Regis. We want to make sure it never happens again to anybody else because it's happened far too often. Three, two, one, Regis! Following the memorial, 29 doves were released by the family. And those gathered took to the streets, marching to nearby High Park in what organizers dubbed a walk for justice. Justice is ensuring that we live in a city and we live in a world in which nobody can lose their life after an interaction with police and nothing gets done about it. The walk ended here with a celebration of life. Organizers hope that the walk and the celebration will become annual events of remembrance. We have the police killing of a 16-year-old uh, girl, Aisha Hudson, uh, an Indigenous teenager in Winnipeg. So we have this mass, you know, these, this mass wave of protests of DeAndre Campbell, too, this, uh, a, black, a black man who was having a mental health crisis and more, right? So we have these mass movements against anti-black racism, against policing happening in the country. And we see the government doing 
something that's very uh, on brand for Canada, which is the Prime Minister is taking a knee, the Chief of Police in Toronto, Mark Saunders is taking a knee, nominally committed to injustice, although the protests are, of course, against them, against the policies that they have enabled, right? But you have this commitment to the very real pretense of being horrified by this kinds of violence, as if, again, to think again with Catherine Hedrick's terms, as if it's a surprise, as if this is the first time this has been brought forward, as if there was no acute awareness of these very real conditions beforehand. But then, of course, as we have this mass push, just this is just an example, getting really to the present, which is what you asked me. So we have this really strong push and really wide popular support now for this notion of defunding the police. Almost half of Canadians, for example, support or somewhat support this. And you see the prime minister you know, putting aside even more money for for body camps specifically, right, which is explicitly not explicitly not what is being demanded in a context where there are very real and tangible demands that could genuinely impact black people's uh, ability to to live with some kind of dignity uh, in this country. Right. So I guess I'm just really trying to point out that there's a there's a real specificity to the ways in which the language of anti-racism is deployed in which the language of commitment, like of naming something like anti-black racism, committing now to ending it um, is part of Canadian culture. This notion that we address these things here, for example, right. But without ever actually doing so. And in fact, Canada has a particular legacy of um, not mandating race-based data. So it's actually always difficult to, to prove any of this, right? Like to get so many stats around, for example, the incarceration of black people in provincial jails, uh, police stops, as opposed to just having that data available, it's often relying on freedom of information acts of all of this kind of work. So it's actually structurally disguised and takes an enormous amount of work to expose this. And I would say that the reception of my of policing black lives ended up actually being surprisingly warm and open and that's because again I'm not one to give myself this large amount of credit like we were in the context of a mass movement right of black people fighting across the country there had been a five city day of support uh, action in support after the police killing of Abdirahman Abdi who was a Somali man in a mental health crisis who was um, beaten to death by the police in Ottawa, right? That we're seeing again in the second wave where somehow my book has really been uh, picked up in, I guess, the media, you know, and by readers again, but it's not be, you know, I'm happy that I wrote the book, but I think what it's speaking to is the fact that uh, black people, young, young people especially are taking to the streets in unprecedented ways in a way that's actually quite difficult for society to ignore because this is really historic kinds of, of liberation work. And that's what I would really say is making it possible for there to be suddenly, if you look to the Canadian bestsellers list, it's like almost all indigenous and black writers, right? Because I think there just is this reckoning moment we're happening across North America globally. I mean, I'm so glad you also, when speaking about the outward appearance of benevolence and how that is used to really mask or cover the actual violence and the sort of material depravity that's taking place at the hands of the Canadian state. I'm glad you brought it international because I was thinking so much about how, for example, uh, the Canadian state has weapons and arms deals with Saudi Arabia or how they are hand and foot in solidarity with the U.S. and the imperialist world on sanctions or the multitude of ways that Canada enacts violence on Black people as well as non-Black people of color around the world, really, while still maintaining this veneer of post-racial society, whatever that even means, right? That's that's the word. If I could block a word in real life, <laughs> <laughs> I, I would like to not hear anyone say that one out loud again, honestly. <laughs> but uh, yeah. so I, thank you for touching on that. And this branding, which you said works 
so strongly on Canadians, it also works on people in the U.S. and other places of the world, too. If you recall, the second that President Donald Trump was running for office and people started to really realize that he was about to be the president of the U.S., you had thousands of Americans on social media saying they were moving to Canada, right? Like that was the sort of panacea or the antithesis to the white supremacist violence of the U.S. was a move to Canada, not realizing Canada itself has its centuries-long violence. So that branding and that sort of, and, and even the word multiculturalism, I mean, I hate that word and I hate this sort of coinage all around it and baggage. It's not even really used in the U.S. anymore. So the fact that I think Canada still holds on to it a little bit more is also very telling in and of itself, but that might be a whole separate conversation. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the only thing I was just going to say about that was that there is one thing that I like to, the aspirational elements of multiculturalism, I suppose, just as compared to say this melting pot idea, you know, the idea that like one can maintain, you know, aspects of culture and all these things to me, of course, like is just, is a given. It's just that really when it's like this commitment to the idea to the idea of it, as opposed to the to the practice of it, and also the mm-hmm. way that it is sort of ideologically separated um, from material conditions, right? That somehow you can have the preservation of culture um, when you don't have access to decent housing or transit or food security, right? So the idea mm-hmm. that somehow you can have culture, quote you know, quote unquote, without uh, the ability to live. Yeah, and we can also think of multiculturalism in its co-opted state, right? Multiculturalism is always entangled and attached to the capitalist state now, right? Mm -hmm. So it's multiculturalism and diversity and inclusion in the military or, you know, in the government, in the state, in the police, in, in these various institutions that are directly responsible really for the erosion of culture, actually. And so there is this sort of paradoxical way that it's almost an entrapment in, in itself, right? It's it's multiculturalism at the expense of everything you love and of your livelihood, essentially. Absolutely. Um, so a central argument of yours in the book is that anti-Blackness is not just present and it's not just something that you can observe in Canadian law and, and civil society and public and private life, but that its existence is actually the maintenance and, and what sustains what, what we know as Canada. And, you know, you use case studies and historical analysis to make this point. And I'm wondering if you can kind of elaborate on that a little bit, what it means that anti-Blackness is central to the existence of Canada. Sure. Yeah, no, I appreciate that question. Um, I think that because I suppose really especially trying to write a book that's not, you know, that wasn't sort of a history of Black communities in Canada or a history of Canada, the country, but was a history looking at state violence um, in Canada as it has evolved um, from the era of slavery and maybe even more explicit indigenous genocide <laughs> into the present. I think that, that it's, it's so clear to see if you look, for example, at any state institution in Canada, whether that's um, the so-called criminal justice system of jails and prisons um, and policing, you know, where black people are killed at a rate that's 20 times higher, uh, shot and killed at a rate that's 20 times higher than, uh, than white residents of Toronto, for example, right? That black people are incarcerated at a rate that's three times higher uh, their rate in the population. That's both black men and women. That black people, because especially of the ways in which black people are policed and because of the strong connections between Canadian policing and CBSA, which is Canada Border and Secur- Securities Agency, we also see, you know, black people being subject to 
detention, immigration detention, which in Canada is indefinite. Uh, we have, you know, situations of black migrants being held for almost a decade uh, because, you know, serving, you know, serving a short jail sentence for like a small amount of crack and then being held uh, not because they're a security risk, but because their identity was unverifiable, right? So we have this ways in which anti-black, anti-blackness is fundamentally embedded into the way that these institutions function. You know, being subject again, uh, if we talk about things like what y'all call, call stop and frisk carding, if that means you're like, that you're more likely to be arrested, to be charged. That also, I mean, this is true for black migrant communities in the U.S. as well, but over half of Canada's population was born elsewhere. So this is something that's especially egregious here, where of course, um, you know, something as like walking to the store that ends in a police encounter could also end up not only in beating, death, in worst case scenarios, arrest, but also deportation, detention, and all of this, right? That we really do have this particularly carceral uh, continuum that's really important as well here. If we look to Toronto District School Board, which is Canada's largest school board, we saw that, um, I believe it was in 2015, 2016, that black youth were, you know, almost 40% uh, of expulsions and suspulsions versus 10% of white youth. So we can see the ways in which the legacies of slavery, the legacies of segregation that are formal and informal, although Canada has, you know, compared to a country like the US or Brazil, a much smaller black population are still fundamentally intrinsic to how many of those institutions, these public institutions that we now take for granted function, right? That the policing of blackness was endemic as well, of course, um, as the policing of indigenous communities was really endemic to how many of the so-called public institutions that we now take for granted uh, came into be. So to answer, because you'd also asked about indigenous populations, I think it's really important to look at the ways in which, you know, if you look now to Canada's jails and prisons, you can see that, you know, over half of prison populations in the prairies, for example, are are indigenous peoples, right? So this is fundamentally a way that settler colonialism is being um, embodied in the present day of removing indigenous peoples from their land, from their communities in this present day. And of course, we're also seeing the militarized policing of, uh, you know, communities right now in Haudenosaunee uh, communities and the 1492 land back lane pro- uh land struggles that are happening in this moment, but this is deeply connected to the history of the way that that policing developed in the country. So you have what's now called the Royal Canadian Mounted Police uh, was then dis- was then named the Northwest Mounted Police. And this is, you know, Elizabeth Comack and others have really done such a powerful job of highlighting the ways that this really was part of the way that Canada was trying to clear the plains of Indigenous peoples, right? That this was part of how to actually c- uh, clear land uh, for the settlers, that there's also, you know, the policy that was really the purposeful starvation of thousands of indigenous people who were then sort of force marched to force walked to um to reservations right so there's this legacy in which policing has has evolved out of carceral controls that you know targeted black communities indigenous communities and importantly i should say people other people who are not considered white at this time like the irish the italians if you look uh you know we also see this kinds of racialized policing and if you look to the 19th and 20th century you see you know, black women being incarcerated, you know, there's one, I forget the years, just a second here, but black women were about 3% of the population of Halifax. Oh, yes, between 1864 and 1873. But um, at this time, we're 40% of incarcerated women, right? So you can see the ways in which, you know, anti-blackness was still something that is foundational uh, to, to Canada, even though, of course, it's important to note, I think that Although slavery was practiced, was legal in Canada for over 200 years, it wasn't the kind of plantation society that you saw, for example, in the United in the United States. But I think it's really important to understand that that 
the practice was still something that was normal, that was normalized, um, that it was described as the best, you know, the best men and women, and the best men and women of the of the colony owned slaves, for example, by one historian, right? That um, also the involvement of white settlers in the economies of the transatlantic slave trade, as Charmaine Nelson's work especially shows us, were were integral, right? So this is part, this is a really crucial part of how this, you know, the colonies that then became Canada and the country of Canada came to be. You even have Canada's first prime minister, John A. Macdonald, who was also the architect of the residential school program, uh, which was a, ge- a genocidal program that removed Indigenous children from their families from the founding of Canada until about, uh, I guess, 25 years ago. A young boy trying to escape. It was 1966 when Chani Wenjack ran away from a residential school. His body was found near railroad tracks a week later. He was only 12. A new Heritage Minute tells his story through the voice of his sister Pearl. I survived residential school. My brother Chani did not. For John Custer, watching it brings back painful memories of his own experience. Many times boys would run away the girls would run away, and if we were caught, they would shave our heads and beat the hell out of you. Custer was one of more than 150,000 children forced to attend residential school in the 19th and 20th centuries. He's now part of a group that holds an annual reunion for survivors and their families. He believes there are still people who don't fully know what really happened. It was a reality. For me, it's nice to talk about it once in a while to get rid of it. The Minute was written by Canadian author Joseph Boyden. Seeing that little boy on the railroad track dead uh, because he went to a school that, uh, that was supposed to give him an education is very disturbing. They forced him to go to the Indian residential school. Doris Young was a member of an advisory committee with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and spent years in residential school. She says while this might help educate, she would prefer to see something positive launch on Aboriginal Day. We're supposed to be out there dancing and making, you know, uh, telling our children what wonderful people they are. For Historica Canada, it's important to recognize all parts of Canadian history to move forward. In 1966, Chani Wenjack's death triggered the first inquest into the treatment of students at residential schools, but his family wasn't allowed to attend. But so his one of his justifications that he provided uh, in written testimony for maintaining the death penalty in Canada was because black men uh, were seen as a, as a sexual threat to so-called what as a sexual threat to white women were seen as, you know, dangerous, possible rapists. Right. So you still have the, the pathologization of blackness, the criminalization of blackness kind of woven into the social fabric, as well as, you know, embedded into the development of uh, institutions of so-called public safety, you know, policing, law enforcement, of so-called child uh, protection, you know, for example, where you see where we you saw segregated, you know, segregation within child child welfare of segregated schooling. Where, of course, um, there's a really beautiful documentary by Sylvia Hamilton called "The Little Black Schoolhouse" that details the last segregated school in Canada, which closed in 1983, which is very notable, I think, given that you know Canadian school books teach us about. 
of course, the end of segregated schooling in the United States to say, look over there at this terrible thing that happened and how black people <laughs> fought against it. And then there's very little, it's, it's, it's simply not taught uh, outside of probably a very a few wonderful teachers, you know, that 30 years later, you have the same practice um, existing in some parts of Canada. I think you sort of touched on something that has been on my mind for a little bit, but we can really map out, um, we can look at policing in different countries, specifically capitalist countries and especially settler states, right? And we can look at the ways that different forms and different different structures of slavery and colonialism led to variations in policing, right? We can see, for example, as you just sort of described that Canada's policing system looks the way it does because of the very specific Canadian violences of settler colonialism and capitalism that it's built upon, or slavery, sorry, that it's built upon, right? So if, if we can acknowledge that as an observable phenomenon, that we can acknowledge that policing and prisons themselves are products of slavery, colonialism, genocide, right? If, if that makes Absolutely. sense. I don't know if I'm explaining that very well. No, I think you described it exactly in the most accurate terms possible, actually. It, I think you you really illustrated that in, in describing this. And uh, I was going to save this question for later, but I, I think because you did touch on Indigenous people's struggles, and I know we, me and you spoke about this a few months ago, I believe in on Twitter, Twitter DMs, but in recent months, I mean, for many, many years, but I'm speaking more specifically about recent months since the sort of defund the police movement has boomed, the corporate media in Canada or mainstream media in general, as well as many politicians seem to be determined and continually trying to drive a wedge between Indigenous Canadians and Black Canadians, placing their struggles as sort of in opposition or against one another. And in reality, in speaking with people like yourselves and others, it seems that the struggles are actually much more similar than they are different. And there's so much more solidarity that is left out. I'm curious if you could just sort of tell me where where do Indigenous struggles figure into your work and how do you view this current attempt to divide and further really drive a wedge between these two historically oppressed communities? I think this is such an important question. And I remember what you're referring to, which is there was this, um, I forget if it was in the Toronto Star or the Globe and Mail, but this, I'm pretty sure it was the Toronto Star, uh, this opinion piece written by not a solicit opinion writer, but by the editorial board of the newspaper that was, and I'm paraphrasing here, but it was saying, you know, in this, you know, in these uprisings for, for black people's lives, let's save some outrage for indigenous people, right? Which the premise of which is already that there's only a finite amount of outrage that exists against racism. And if we use too much of it on what's happening with black people, that somehow there will be none left for indigenous peoples, right? Which is already really a way of pitting communities against one another that are, you know, feel that I think we all feel we have plenty of outrage for our own communities as well as for one another. You know, I saw as much, I saw a massive amount of outrage for the, you know, the death of Aisha Hudson and Chantal Moore in the context of police killings and Chantal Moore, it was a wellness check. As for Regis Karshinsky Paquet, who I described as a black woman, but actually more accurately was an Afro-Indigenous woman. So excuse my wording there, right? That I think there's a strong recognition that of course the history of Indigenous genocide of Canada in residential schools, for example, is not identical to, of course, you know, the history of segregated schooling, uh, the history of clearing Indigenous peoples from their land is not identical, you know, it's not identical to the ways in which Black peoples were police slavery and, and genocide were not, were not identical projects, but at the same time, like, 
I mean, this is something that I was really struck with in my work uh, as a community-based outreach worker. Like anywhere you go, where you're looking to see state violence, whether that's the mass apprehension of Black kids from their homes, you see a similar, a very similar reality, a similar material reality uh, when it comes to the state for Indigenous people, right? Like the mass, indi- the mass removal of Indigenous people into childcare has been called the new residential schools because the rates are so massive, Right. So anywhere that you look to find this injustice against Black people, if you look to the rates of police killings, well, the RCMP, for example, um, you know, especially has been responsible for the mass disproportionate killings of Indigenous peoples, right? If you look again to Canadian jails and Canadian prisons, like it's us, <laughs> that's who's there, you know? Um, and of course, also poor, poor white populations as well, right? Um, you know, the way that racial capitalism works always <laughs> hides the ways in which, of course, poor white people are also being harmed by this. And it sort of goes, this is, this is how it functions, right? So that erasure, I think, is important just to highlight that, of course, it's not only Black and Indigenous peoples. So I think to me, especially because I was trying to trace and really weave a particular chronology of how state practices are really sort of foundationally anti-Black, I just having... I think maybe even just my own experience of having witnessed the places that, again, we are really together, (laughs) I felt really important to crucially look at the ways in which settler colonialism was weaved into that history, the way that these histories are um, working with one another in the ways in which white supremacy has has functioned, right? Which is, of course, to maintain both the economic uh, subjugation of Black communities, of Indigenous communities, kind of a racialized terror against uh, black and indigenous communities when it comes to things like, you know, white settler violence too, that these are not really happening in ways that we need or should consider separate. And in terms of our legacies, again, the idea somehow that we need to save some outrage when our communities have in fact very, not always, right, but frequently worked together. So if we're looking to sort of what we could call Black Lives Matter 1.0, because now I'd say we're we're in the next, amazingly, we're sort of in the next phase uh, of all of this, right, where something has really Turned, blossomed into like a movement in a way that maybe we wouldn't have even foreseen six years ago. But there was, you know, really strong support and inter-support of, you know, Indigenous activists coming out, for example, to the Black Lives Matter Toronto tent city, which was the two-week occupation outside of Toronto Police Headquarters, right? And then the Black Lives Matter Toronto support for uh, for INAC, for the occupation of the Indigenous Ministries Office, right? So we actually see like a real on the ground uh, connection. And now that we're looking at this movement, especially towards defunding the police, like what what that movement really is, like defund police is the word that it has taken, but what that movement is about is about exposing the fact that policing is racial violence, is gendered violence. And if we're doing that, of course, this is, you know, the communities that are being the most impacted by policing, by brutality, by by death at the hands of the police, by surveillance, then of course, there's very much um, the fact that our two, the, the histories of violence are so mutually embedded in those systems, I think, especially in this moment, uh, we really see a lot of cross discussions, communications, solidarity, you know, particularly in cities like Winnipeg, where there's a really, you know, where there's a much larger Indigenous population and a lot of new Black communities that have been resettled, right, that um, that these struggles are linked. And, you know, the struggle to end the mass surveillance of Black communities, to me, you cannot do so while leaving intact the mass surveillance and captivity of Indigenous communities, because that is not freedom, right? We can't create freedom unless we're addressing the freedom of broader people. That's what what Black liberation, I think, has always been committed to, is a broader human freedom project, right? It's not about only just liberating ourselves and then somehow becoming equal within a violent status quo, but it's about overturning a violent status quo and creating something else. And that very much means to me that Indigenous uh, land-based struggles, Indigenous struggles against policing are something that are part of Black freedom too. 
another thing that you do so well in your work that I would be remiss not to ask you about is you resist the urge to make every chapter a comparison to the U.S. prison system. And so much of this kind of work and scholarship often does that, right? Everything, because the, the U.S. prison system is sort of seen as a stand-in for the evils of all prisons everywhere and at times. Um, I think that's a, something that abolitionists in the U.S. can fall into just based on, I mean, American chauvinism is something that is something that we're born into believing. So I think that in turn can also impact how we can at times view U.S. prisons as the only prison struggle and that everything must be in contrast or in comparison to the U.S. prison. You resist that trap very well, I think, while you do often highlight the similarities between the prison apparatuses and policing apparatuses and anti-Black violence apparatuses in the U.S. and Canada, from poverty to wars on drugs and police violence against Black people and domestic violence as well, or intimate violence, I do feel that you really ground it and give an analysis that is really grounded and rooted in Canada specifically. I want to know how intentional that was. I mean... It was intentional, <laughs> uh, just, you know, straight up. I think that it, it w- felt really crucial. I think that there is so much in- amazing work, right? Like, I think you'll, you know, through reading the book, you'll see, like, how much I'm thinking through the works of Angela Davis, the works of Andrea Ritchie, that there is just such incredible analysis of the prison industrial complex in the United States and its historical development that I think is, of course, invaluable for the ways in which we can think about the history of criminalization more broadly. But I also think it's important not to just sort of allow the U.S. examples to drown out everything that's happening elsewhere, particularly, you know, in the country that that I live, in the place where I live, especially because of, I think, the broader tendency of the media and dominant political discourse to only always allow what's happening in the United States to drown out the realities here, often the ex- at the expense of Black communities who are actually organizing for justice, right? So I think that there's like a displacement that happens there with this constant focus on the United States. Now, of course, it's really crucial to understand, to understand incarceration as a global phenomenon. The U.S., of course, is a major, you know, plays a major role in the incarceration. It's sort of, in, in some ways, it's incomparable in, just in terms of the vast expanse of, you know, the ways in which incarceration has taken place, right? But I just think that we cannot allow that to take the place of local study, of understanding the ways in which anti-Black violence is a crisis everywhere that it takes place. So I was trying to look at, you know, comparing sometimes the United States, but also we can compare many of the experiences that we experience as black communities in Canada to the United Kingdom, especially when it comes to things like, you know, targeted deportations, when it comes to things like, um, you know, hostility towards black migrants, in particular, black um, uh, black men, black women from the Caribbean, right? That there are, uh, you know, there are similarities to what is happening in Brazil, like to understand anti-blackness as something that is a legacy of the transatlantic slave trade of colonization of neocolonization globally, right? So anywhere you have countries that have those particular legacies, I think that you'll see whether, however vastly expansive the sort of domestic enslavement of black people was that nonetheless you see in Paris, you know, you have the police killing of Adama Traore, the mass, you know, the mass uh, black responses to that. So I think it's just really important for us to stop allowing the United States to stand in as the sort of exceptional 
exceptional and exceptionally anti-Black uh, place, although it's the heart of the empire in this particular moment, right, that we cannot allow that to sort of stand in, especially for our struggle in our own particular locations and how those are, of course, linked to the U.S., that it's not this comparison. But, you know, there are, just as I said, you know, there are solidarity protests uh, against the killing of George Floyd, but there are also protests because Regis Karshinsky Baquet was killed here, because DeAndre Campbell was killed here, because Black people are dying here, <laughs> Right. So it's important to have, I think, an analysis that helps us understand the ways in which um, uh, Canada works, uh, the ways in which people are being harmed in this place. Um, because otherwise, again, one of the reasons that I like to write is because I to me, I'm just I always feel that I cannot address or fight something effectively unless I have a, a more in-depth understanding of it. And that's sort of always that cur driving curiosity that, that leads me towards this kind of work. And something I think that's so crucial is the way that anti-blackness in the U.S. sort of stands as the, the only way in which anti-Black racism is understood, right? So we have this back-to-back -back coverage, for example, after the police killing of Trayvon Martin, like it's played, you know, the protests, all of this is every hour on the hour. But, you know, when you have a two-week occupation of police headquarters for Andrew Loku, when you have a five-day police protest for Abdilhaman Abdi, when you have now, you know, these mass protests all across Canada that we'd seen that are historic this summer, there's still so much more focus on the protests that are happening in the United States. What's happening here is often seen as a sort of sympathy and there's this misdirection of what's taking place where people are, of course, sympathetic. You know, for Black people, there's always been a strong transnational um, solidarity and understanding, of course, in our organizing. But in this way that displaces the fact that that outrage is being directed also at Canadian institutions, right? It's being directed at the police in Toronto, in Montreal, in Halifax. So there's this sort of denial that the outrage is localized. And that's something that I feel that... You know, black communities are very aware of this, and it's really something that's really done, really in hegemonic discourse to make it seem as if somehow we are only mimicking somehow the United States. We're sort of mimicking outrage in order to play to play into a particular narrative, right? So I think it's important to interrupt that, to know that, you know, black people here are aware of the ways in which we have been, you know, explicitly like denigrated and exploited by the state in ways... Um, in the cities where we live, right? That there are city, you know, there are city streets with names of slavers uh, in Canada, right? So it's 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 like ludicrous to imagine that this level of outrage and revolt and protest could be some could only be in an abstracted sympathy. That of course it's about people's material conditions, and we're seeing that globally, right? As we're seeing this movement globalize, that it's about racial violence everywhere, right? And the ways in which that really is like the global racial uh, economic order at this time, I would say there's a broader dissatisfaction that is not that is that is explicitly transnational as well as local. Definitely, you hit the nail on the head. And I'm thinking a lot about the few times that I have been, I've been brought to Canada by different student groups or universities to speak. It's always been related to policing and abolition. And I have to frame my, whenever I'm on a panel, you know, I have to frame what I'm about to say with that I'm speaking specifically about the U.S. or I'm speaking specifically about this. You know, I'm, I, I try to be very cognizant of the framing of my work for this particular reason. I want people to understand that when I talk about prisons, if I say the U.S. prisons, I'm not saying the U.S. prisons as a stand-in for all prisons, right? Like, not that I'm making a commentary on all prisons, more so just that I'm speaking specifically to the conditions which I know and I have studied. And uh, I want to give a shout out to the students at the University of Toronto who actually brought me in the beginning of this year in 2020, a few days before the pandemic started, actually. Uh, <laughs> whole another funny story. We had to consider if we were going to stop the events or not. But students like Khalil, 
Maryam, Yasmina, Habiba, Rana, you know, the, they all were very, very wonderful in framing the conversation, the panel I was on in such a way that it was truly putting the Canadian and U.S. prison systems in conversation with one another and neither one standing in place of the other, right? Mm-hmm. And I feel like because of that framing, I was really able to learn so much about the realities of the Canadian prison industrial complex and policing. And so I do challenge listeners to always keep in mind that American exceptionalism and chauvinism can also affect those of us on the left, right? It can also affect abolitionists and the way that we can even at times attempt to ascribe sort of a Western-centric notion of abolition onto other people without knowing the sort of material realities and and the context of their experiences, right? Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to put that out there. And finally, I guess my last question for you um, is, what does the abolitionist movement look like in Canada right now? With so much happening, the pandemic, the global movement for Black lives, the massive solidarity uh, from immigrant detention centers, prisons and jails all across North America, South America, movement in Brazil, movement in Palestine. What does the abolitionist community and movement look like right now in Canada? And I know that's a very big question to end on. <laughs> um, that's a huge question. So I'll try to touch on the parts that I really see. There's because I there's like a really beautiful community of abolitionist thinkers and scholars. And there's also a really strong self-organized Black liberation movements that I would say are, whether or not self-defined as abolitionist, are absolutely, of course, you know, from places of captivity and confinement, from working up against the border regime, are abolitionist in that they are both fighting against anti-Black carceral systems and working to create a different, you know, a kind of freedom as, you know, in Ruthie Wilson Gilmore's words, uh, as a presence. I'll look to, I'll sort of give it a bit of a nod to both of those things, because I think that something that to me is really striking is that before the the kind of revolt that we are seeing in terms of street-based protests, street-based protests, of course, that really, I think, catalyzed the summers of both the United States and Canada, there was a hunger strike that I was, you know, that I was helping support from, you know, from another city that took place led by largely black migrants in the Laval detention center, uh, who, of course, had just learned about COVID from the radios were, uh, and, the t- and the televisions were being subject to confinement that was absolutely placing their risk of, of COVID it, just in high vulnerability. So undertook this hunger strike that ended up lasting, I believe it was six days, right? That was not only demanding their own release, but was demanding the release of all detainees that was linked to a demand for status for all right? Because looking at the ways in which, again, uh, migrants, especially in the context of COVID, are, are so highly vulnerable, right? So it was, th- it was something that was not only, of course, to secure their own release from detention, but that was drawing attention to the real violence that is captivity, that is immigration detention. And I think that's something that's a kind of solidarity, you know, that the work of, uh, you know, what Joy James calls incarcerated intellectuals of people um, behind bars is often really at the, the forefront so many of these struggles. And I just really wanted to highlight that as sort of being really early element of what we've now, like, I think we can look at at this really historic summer of uprisings, but that that began in some ways, I would say, uh, behind behind bars in, the immig- in an immigration detention center. And of course, there is, you know, there have now been, uh, you know, hunger strikes and actions in jails uh, and prisons 
across the country, right, that are being documented by the Toronto Prisoners' Rights Project, for example, by the work of Justin Pichet, that there's just really strong, you know, there's been a really strong movement for release, for the release of prisoners, pointing to the ways in which prisons are always already violent and how COVID really exposes uh, and exposes all of this. So I think that that's been really one strong element of this 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 freedom making work that is happening right now and of course i mean i i think i've just discussed the police defunding work a, a little bit but i think it's just important to you know highlight that almost uh i think there was around 70 and this is just by like mid to end of june protests maybe by mid to end july i'm forgetting now protests that had taken place that were you know implicitly or explicitly linked to defunding specifically we're in a context where now we're seeing a push to get um sros uh, special resource officers you know police in schools out of schools across canada so this is something that already had been be- had begun with groups like black lives matter toronto and latin and education not incarceration in toronto which had already pushed sros out of the toronto district school board but now we're seeing this push successfully in hamilton we're seeing a movement towards this in edmonton we're seeing a move toward this in vancouver in winnipeg like a really strong push to just again make certain spaces less carceral for black students, for indigenous students, for racialized students more broadly, right? Again, I think that anything that is reducing the scale, the scope, the reach of policing in any of these facets of our society, right? Those like Mariam Cab and Andrea Ritchie describe it in their amazing interrupting criminalization booklet, you know? Um, I really think that all of this, there's so much of this work that's happening across multiple levels. We have cities pushing in Toronto, for example, to cut the police budget, which is over a billion dollars, by 50%. In Montreal, what began as 20, but now is about 65 organizations strong pushing to defund the Montreal police budget by 50%. So we're seeing a really strong Black-led, but also very multiracial at this time, coalition to end the reliance on police and prisons as so-called public safety, to think about public safety as differently, as something that could be massively more expansive if, again, we are to take very seriously the actual role that police and prisons play in our society. And I'd say, I never thought I would see a time where the legitimacy of the institution itself of policing had been so widely questioned where we're at this point where I never would have imagined I would be on national on, on national television talking about like, where else could this police budgeting go? Like, why do we not need, why, do, why, why should we actually not rely on policing period? Like, these are, of course, things that we have in our, in our own communities been articulating for years, but that suddenly there's the legitimacy of the institution itself, I think, is really is really being questioned, is really being challenged in a way that is absolutely, you know, despite the fact I think we've seen less institutional wins that I would like to see. I think that this massive culture shift and, you know, I'm thinking of this Cedric Robinson face. So he, he keeps repeating the line, the first attack is the attack on the culture, <laughs> you know, and I'd say we've seen like a quite successful attack on the culture in this way where we've really seen some victorious <laughs> cultural shifts across the country that are, it's hard to imagine how you could really come back from this. And that's something that I feel pretty excited about, even in a context where like in Toronto, where there's such, you know, really strong support for something like police defunding, really interesting questioning, questions around abolition more broadly. And then, of course, you have the mayor committing $50 million to body cams. You have the uh, the provincial leader committing $500 to, to building new jails, right? So at the same time as we're having these massive cultural wins, we're still seeing these institutional losses. So I'm not... I'm an optimist, but I'm an optimist who's, uh, you know, attentive to the facts, uh, to the institutional realities of our lives. And I mean, just one more struggle that I think I would want to point out uh, that, again, I would see as 
abolitionist in its orientation is just the fact that so many black migrants in particular have been on the forefront and migrants more broadly, right, of people without citizenship status have been on the forefront of COVID prevention, especially, you know, I'm thinking about Montreal, where a lot of the undocumented um, people who'd crossed the US-Canada border who were treated by the Quebec government as, it was literally described as a migrant crisis. They actually brought down immigration levels specifically to address this, right? But now it's a lot of those undocumented workers who've been working on the forefront of COVID response, whether that's as janitors, whether that's as, um, they're called preposé, like, a, what's the word in English? Health, anyways, like as health as healthcare workers, right? I, half of my news reading is in French, so sometimes I, I lose the words. I'm I'm a longtime Montrealer before I lived in Toronto, but you know, so really on the front lines of the COVID nineteen crisis of the the black and largely Mexican uh, agricultural workers who are picking the fruit that you know most Canadians eat and supporting the agribusiness again with extremely high vulnerability to, to COVID are really like sustaining the economy are the, you know, so-called essential workers, but are actually in structural conditions where they're facing, uh, again, possible deportation, again, extremely unsafe working conditions. And there's a, a really, I'd say, a ramped up movement for status for all for an end to this apartheid-like structure of citizenship categories more broadly that, that are because of this, right? Because now, of course, these essential workers are being called in Quebec, like the guardian angels of the pandemic, right? But at the same time, a vast majority of these people might not even be allowed to stay in this country, right? Might not actually be allowed to even live here freely, could get picked up at any moment. So you're just the vast hypocrisy of categories of immigration citizenship and their connection to so-called rights, I think are also something that's being exposed at this time. That is, is a really crucial element to me of what abolitionist struggle looks like. Mm. Two notes, you speaking of uh, your optimism, a metered optimism is what I'll call it. It makes me think of a lot of Antonio Gramsci's pessimism of the intellect, but optimism of the will. Obviously now a very classic sort of cliche quote, but I do think it it does encapsulate a lot of what I'm feeling as well. And then the guardian angel, that language really is just a code word for sacrificial lamb. In my yes. Opinion. Just like we saw in, in the US, the incarcerated man who was fighting fires. He was incarcerated for, I believe, two decades and was fighting fires, the wildfires. And the day he was released, the prison handed him over to ICE and wants him deported. Um, his name is slipping my mind at the moment, but it just shows you that they're not guardian angels or not essential workers. These are sacrificial lambs at the hands of white supremacist capitalism. Absolutely. So with that, I want to thank you so much for your time. I want to give you one last chance to uh, have any departing words and to tell people where to find you at. Oh, sure. I mean, I think in departing words, I would just say thank you. It's been such a pleasure. I'm actually glad we got to speak twice. Uh, I find it really enjoyable. And yeah, I mean, I suppose people can find my work. I have a website that I will update soon, which is um, www.robinmaynard. That's R-O-B-Y-N-M-A-Y-N-A-R-D.com. And I'm on Twitter at Policing Black. And... I mean, that's, I think that's about it. That's, that's where you can find me, my work, my general thoughts. All right. Sounds great. Well, this has been another episode of the Groundings Podcast. I hope everyone listening takes these words to heart. Go and engage with Robin's work on their website, Twitter, buy the book. It's a phenomenal book. 